Take your copy of God's Word and open to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts. Begin reading this morning in verse 12. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So, with the baptism today, and since really verses 17 through 42 is one long unit, we decided that preaching these verses that I've just read this morning, verses 12 through 16, as just one single sermon may be best. And there actually is a lot here, believe it or not. I know you've, we've all probably read a novel before where you, you read like three or four chapters in a row and it's just filler. That's not what the Bible is like. The Bible doesn't have filler. There's nothing here that's just here to fill some extra space so that the book is longer and that these verses, Acts 5, 12 through 16, are included as Scripture. They are important. Let's remember precisely how we got here. The previous passage that we have already looked at in this chapter is certainly part of Luke's narrative here in this text before us this morning. But way back in chapter 4, verse 32, Luke expresses just how united the church in Jerusalem was, how they were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. They cared for one another like you would expect a family to care for one another. They willingly sacrificed their own possessions so that a brother or sister's needs would be met. This was not forced. This was not communism. This was not the state law. Now actually what makes this so impactful... So, so amazing, so, so influential is that this sacrificial attitude by these members of the church in Jerusalem was something they didn't have to be forced to do. They, they voluntarily did this. And the church had much influence. Look at verse 33 in chapter 4. It says there that with, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus... And great grace was upon them all. And the, the disciples, the, I mean, excuse me, the apostles were distributing to those that had needs. Those with plenty laid their offerings, verse 35 says, at the apostles' feet. One specific member with an excess of land, verse 37 says, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This man's Name was Barnabas. This is a man that we will study a bit more about as we work through the book of Acts. 
His heart was in the right place. He was not doing this for praise. Then though, we studied of a couple, a man and his wife by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. And in contrast to Barnabas, though they had promised to do the same thing, their heart was not in the right place. They proved actually to be hypocrites. Now, precisely why they lied, we don't know. Uh, Maybe they wanted public praise that they did not get. We cannot be sure. Perhaps the land that they sold, sold for more than they expected it to sell for. Now they had more money in their hands than they really intended to give the church the whole time. But we're not told. We don't know the reason. All we know is what Luke has written here. And he just informs us of their actions. Verse 2, it says that Ananias, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. They lied to the apostles, they lied to the church, but even bigger than that, worst of all, they lied to God, verse 4 says. And then God, in a swift act of judgment, took both of their lives. Ananias, the husband, and Sapphira, the wife. And so verse 11, as you might expect, says that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. So the membership of the church feared, but not only the church, all who heard of these things feared as well. That leads into our text this morning. This section here that I just read to you is actually the third summary section in the book of Acts. The the first was back in chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The second was in chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. Those two summary statements related to life inside the church. Here's what was going on inside the church. But here, in this summary statement, verses 12 through 16 of chapter 5, we see more of a relationship of the apostles to people outside the church. The name of my sermon this morning is Fear in the Church. In this text, we're going to see the immediate effect of God's judgment, not only on those inside the church, but in those in the surrounding community as as well. So Luke begins here in verse 12 and says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. So many signs and wonders were regularly done. This this was widespread. These things were undeniable. This was a frequent occurrence. And this text is crystal clear. These miracles were being done through the apostles, specifically. Twelve men out of literally thousands of church members. John MacArthur actually said, quote, This is not a miracle-working church. This is a church with miracle-working apostles. End quote. That's significant. And I think he's right. There's a reason that Luke is so specific here. You'll, you'll probably recall when we preached through the gospel that, that bears his name, we learned that Luke is a meticulous historian. Exactly what you'd expect from someone who's been educated the way that a physician has been educated, right? Luke Luke is very meticulous in what he writes. 
He isn't accidentally adding words in. So knowing that, I assure you that Luke is not haphazard in saying specifically that the apostles were the ones performing these many signs and wonders. This is specific on purpose. It's interesting, really, the similarity between what is said here of the apostles and what is said about Moses at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says. The last few verses of Deuteronomy says, There has not risen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him, for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Why were those signs done through Moses? I think that's an important question to ask. Simply, Moses was God's spokesman. And Moses, Moses, by those acts that... Moses didn't do, but God did through Moses. By those acts, he proved that the books that he wrote in the Scripture were legitimately God's Word. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible that we call the Pentateuch. Right? He also penned Psalm 90, if you didn't know that. Those signs and wonders done by Moses validated him in that role. Well, the same is true here. The the ministry of the apostles, not merely as church leaders. These men, these aren't just elders of the church. It's not like one of these guys was a pastor and the rest of them were assistant pastors. No, that's not at all what the apostles are. They were official spokesmen for Christ. They were chosen specifically for this role. Not merely as a witness of the resurrection, but that was certainly part of their duty. Since the New Testament was to be given to us primarily through these men and those closely related to them like Luke or or John Mark, much like the Pentateuch was given through Moses, it just makes sense that Luke here specifies that not everyone in the church was doing these acts. The apostles, Christ's spokesmen, they were doing these acts because they were tasked with relaying information that Jesus had given to them, relaying that information to the church. That was their duty. That's why when Matthias was chosen to replace Judas, he had to be there from the baptism of John all the way through the ascension because he had to hear all of that teaching that Jesus had given through all of that time and be prepared to relay it to believers. Now there are a couple of other men that will perform miracles in the book of Acts. But it's the exception. It's not the norm. And even those men, like Stephen for instance, will work very closely with the apostles in apostolic ministry. Then Luke says they were all together in Solomon's portico. This is just a a series of, of columns. We might call this a colonnade. It's on the east side of the temple Grounds. We've actually already been here in the book of Acts back in chapter 3. This is where the Apostle Peter preached his second recorded sermon to the people. Uh, it, it's not like the, the early church was renting the temple at times from the Jewish leaders, right? We, that's not what's going on 
at all. They're just simply saying, hey, let's meet at the temple over by Solomon's portico, and then that's what, that's what they did. Luke just specifies for us that that's where they were. It says in verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's somewhat hard to know specifically who the rest refers to. Back in verse 12, the they who were all together in Solomon's portico could refer to the entire church or it could simply refer to the apostles through whom these miracles were being done. There's no way to know for certain. However, if you take, uh, if you take that uh, that way, that will determine who the rest are. I mean, if it's the whole church, then the rest are unbelievers. If it's only the apostles that were gathered in Solomon's portico, then the rest are the rest of the believers. Well, that makes sense. The second half of verse 13 says, but the people, seemingly the unbelieving crowd, the people held them, the apostles, in high esteem. So it's reasonable to think that the rest were the rest of the believers because maybe they weren't as bold as the apostles to put themselves out there. But, back in chapter 4, verse 31, after they had prayed to the Lord for boldness in the midst of persecution, it seems that the Lord answered that prayer and it says there that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So that would imply that they're not timid at all and they are willing to put themselves out there just like the apostles. Look, this is one of the difficulties of just opening into a book and preaching through it. It's hard to know exactly who the rest are here. You're going to come across things you just can't be certain about. This is no exception. But I think the context here, not only here but in the next section the context it suggests that it is the apostles who were out in front. It is the apostles that were there at Solomon's portico. It is the apostles that were doing all of these signs and wonders. And the rest were the rest of the church who were not nearly as public as the apostles were in their ministry. Luke is clear that the apostles were the miracle workers. And so it would be the apostles that received the most attention from the religious leaders. And much like during the period in which Jesus ministered, the common people were enamored by them. In fact, it says here, they, they the common people, held the apostles in high esteem. But we're going to find out in the next section that the religious leaders did not. We know this is not going to end well already. We haven't even read the rest of the chapter. Verse 14 then says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Now this is, this is significant. Now let's not forget, this is right on the heels of Ananias and Sapphira. Them being put to death by the Lord as an act of judgment for their hypocrisy. And remember, word of that event, their death, spread beyond the church. It got out into the community. One would think then that their death would deter growth. But the opposite seems to be true here. In fact, Luke says, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. 
That's significant. Because back in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 souls were added to the church. In chapter 4, following Peter's sermon at Solomon's portico, Luke says, but many of those who had heard the word believe, the number of the men came to about 5,000. Just the men, it seems like there. But here in Acts 5, after God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, more than ever, people were being saved. This is significant here. Look, if this is not an argument for a sanctified church membership, members living holy lives, different from the world, then there's not a good argument in Scripture. This is, this is a wonderful argument for that. Again, you would think that following this event with Ananias and Sapphira, people would be naturally turned off by the gospel. And I'm sure they were, naturally. But the Holy Spirit used that event to supernaturally impact them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pretty significant, I think. And Luke makes sure that we know in this crowd, these believers, these more than ever, Luke tells us that this included both men and women. There were distinctions in function in the church. There's no question about that. The Bible is clear about that. But unlike many religions in the world back then, and even now for that matter, women were very faithful servants of the Lord in the church. And Luke takes time to tell us that here in this text. Verse 15 says, So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Again, this is the influence of the local church. But there is some cause for concern. Remember what John writes when large crowds came to hear Jesus. This happened early in John's Gospel. John chapter 2, verse 23. It says this, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew he himself knew what was in man. Look, the Gospels bear out that many people sought Jesus merely because they wanted to see a sign. People love a, a magician. Well, the same may be very well the case here. People are just bringing the sick into the streets to be healed by the apostles while being completely uninterested in the actual gospel of Christ. That, that certainly may be going on. It's hard to say. Again, we know that more than ever believers are being added to the Lord, but we also know that the vast, vast majority of Jews ultimately rejected the gospel and were actively antagonistic against the gospel. I'm certainly not sure what to think about these people that came out just hoping Peter's shadow would fall on them. John MacArthur does not believe that any of these people were healed in this way. He says this is just merely superstition. However, Daryl Bach, one of my favorite commentators on any book for that matter, while admitting this was probably superstition on their part, he goes on and say, God is gracious in healing them anyway, end quote. What are we to think? 
I think I agree with John MacArthur that nothing is written here about healing, only their belief that if they would get into the shadow of Peter, they would be healed. However, I disagree with MacArthur ultimately because it seems an odd point for Luke to leave out if no one was being healed. Perhaps this is like one of those instances that we saw during the ministry of Jesus where the woman believed she could just touch the fringe of His garment and be healed. Well, it wasn't the fringe of Jesus' garment that healed the lady, right? It was actually the Lord Himself. John Stott actually connects those two things. He says this, quote, Their action may have been somewhat superstitious, but I see no reason to condemn it as tantamount to belief in magic any more than the woman's faith that to touch the hem of Jesus' garment would be enough to heal her. End quote. That seems reasonable to me. I think God probably healed these people in spite of their superstition. In fact, later in Acts, in chapter 19, Luke tells us that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and then he finishes the story and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. End quote. Were those things superstitious on part of the people? Maybe so. But God still used them anyway to validate His servant Paul. These are supernatural occurrences intended to validate the apostles. So I'm inclined to believe these people were healed. I think it would again have been odd for Luke to leave that out. I'm also willing to admit that God did it in spite of their superstition. But that's not uncommon in Scripture. But it was not their superstition that caused God to do it. That we need to know. It was His grace. Verse 16 says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So we see here more people flooding into the city as the gospel went out from Jerusalem. Remember, they were to begin in Jerusalem and then work their way out. And it seems like this news could not be held in. I mean, these were miraculous events that were happening. No way this was not going to be noised abroad. Certainly it was. It was a big deal, much like the ministry of Jesus. And that should not surprise us because... The apostles' ministry was to be an extension of the ministry of Jesus. Like Jesus taught them, and then churches today even follow the apostles' teaching that they got from Jesus. That's what we should be doing today. Jesus had told the apostles in the upper room the night of His arrest, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. So the apostles were teaching the things Jesus had committed to them. They were working signs and wonders then to validate those teachings. Same thing Jesus did. Same thing Moses did. That's why, folks, when you see miracles done like miracle workers, it's usually around the time that Scripture is being inspired. Miracles aren't happening every 15 minutes on the pages of Scripture. 
like we're led to believe. And they're not happening every 15 minutes today. Not, not miracle workers. God's saving people all the time, and that's the greatest miracle that has ever been given, for God to take a dead sinner and make him alive. But that's not the miracles that the world is interested in. And then notice Luke, Luke distinguishes here between the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. This is, this is good for us. Because there are some today that conflate these two things. They they think all sickness is the result of demonic oppression or even demon possession. But Luke Luke is clear. These things are not necessarily the same thing at all. And certainly there are instances in Scripture, the the, uh, Gospels in particular, where demonic spirits have caused sickness. But that is not always the case. I don't even think it's most commonly the case. We live in fallen bodies that are just going to get sick every once in a while. Most of us, if you have any age behind you at all, you take some kind of pill every day to fix your body for the next day so that you can live another day, right? Maybe maybe an allergy pill for that matter. Look, that's, that's not demonic possession. But there are some today who would have us to think that. We ought to thank God for the meticulous language of Luke here to tell us that those two things are not the same. And by the way, nobody came to be healed and left disappointed. They were all healed. It's not that, oh, well, you're not going to be healed because you don't have enough faith. That's not part of this. They came, they were all healed. This is just another passage that exposes the modern faith healing movement so deeply embedded in the Pentecostal movement today as an absolute fraud. John Phillips writes this, quote, What then of those today who claim to have the gift of healing? Take away the psychosomatic healings, the outright chicanery, the showmanship, the deliberate satanic deception, and the money to be made, and little, if anything, is left, end quote. Amen to that. You know, if a man was actually walking around healing the sick, never asking for a penny, preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ, justification by faith alone, I might be tempted to listen to him, but that man does not exist. It's not even remotely close to what's going on in that movement today. Notice here, people gathered not only from the city of Jerusalem, but from the towns around Jerusalem. This movement, the gospel, the church is making inroads. They are growing in influence. In business terms, we might say they've expanded their footprint in Israel at this time. We get the people that, I mean, we get the picture that people were coming to Jerusalem in uncommon droves at odd times, not for one of the three major feasts, but at odd times they're coming to hear these men, to see what they had to say. Do you think the religious leaders noticed it? Look, they thought they killed Jesus. They really believed that they had ridded the world of that quote-unquote problem. But in murdering Jesus, they had actually exacerbated the problem because Jesus rose from the grave. 
In a real sense then, their actions, as sinful as they were, their actions resulted in the very thing they were witnessing in Jerusalem at this time. By the way, I'm not, I'm not asking a hypothetical question as to whether they took notice. The rest of the chapter will display clearly that they noticed. I mean, they, are, they still hated Jesus, they still hated His followers, and they were intent on stamping out the way. They were intent on stamping out any sect preaching that salvation was to be found in the finished work of Christ and Christ alone. There's no way in the world that these religious leaders were going to allow this to go on in their town without making an attempt to stop it. But they cannot conquer God. So, to the believer, there was fear in the church. But we serve the God of heaven. We will all stand at the judgment seat of Christ. And He is the best note taker that has ever been. Not that He needs notes. But we need to remember that He remembers everything, including our motives in every act that we do. So to the believer, there was fear in the church. To the outsider... There was fear in the church. The, the, the city of Jerusalem took notice of what was going on here in this local church. Look, the world should notice something different about us. And I don't mean in the way they noticed the Amish. That's not what, I'm, that's not what I mean at all. I'm not, I'm not talking about an extra biblical set of rules. That's not what I mean. I am referring to a worldview that is different from theirs. We're not chasing the same dreams that the world is chasing. We should be chasing Christ and His example. You know, I can't help but comment on the placement of this passage. That it comes right after this text on Ananias and Sapphira. Look, perhaps the biggest neglect in churches today, at least churches we would call scriptural churches, the preaching the true gospel. Perhaps the greatest neglect is that we aren't rightly carrying out the necessary action of church discipline. And by, by we, I don't mean us here, but we as a bigger group, orthodox believers. It's as though church leaders today believe that church discipline will destroy a church will hinder church growth. But I call on this text to say that the opposite is the truth. Here, God did the discipline and the church boomed like it had never boomed before. I would say that we, as Orthodox believers today, in many aspects, we have it wrong. And if we operate without discipline, we are actually distorting the gospel at the foundational level. We need to think about how the actions of our members in this community affect what we preach from the pulpit and what we believe as a church. This passage also shows the great way that God works through churches when the membership is bold. 
when the membership gets out into the community and preaches the gospel unapologetically. This is our calling. As a church body, this is our calling. As individuals, this is our calling. We don't need to squander all of the opportunities that God gives us every single day to share the gospel. We need to take advantage of them. To reference the passage that I preached last Sunday, that is the ministry of reconciliation. And that's what we've been sent out into the world to preach. That's our calling. But like these here in this passage, it needs to become our passion. Stand with me if you will.